Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. With me today is Professor Raymond Jonas, a professor of history at the University of Washington, who is recently the author of The Battle of Adwa, African Victory in the Age of Empire, published by Harvard University Press. Thanks for joining me today, and I'd like to start the interview by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, an intellectual biography of sorts, um, how you came to write this book that we're considering. This is, um, in fact, a book that I in effect, fell into. It's uh, a book that had a clear uh, moment, a clear genesis. Uh, it came about in, uh, thanks to a visit I made when I was in Boston. I was at uh, a conference there. It was the American Historical Association, and I was part of a search committee. And uh, after uh, a morning of interviews, we were finished for the day, and I decided I needed to get out and walked to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And in a way, it was a busman's holiday. I thought, well, I should go and look at the modern European art. And I did that. I was the dutiful scholar. But on my way out, I saw an exhibit of photography. And that's one of my avocations. Uh, It happened to be an exhibit of the work of a uh, Bostonian, a photographer named Fred Holland Day, who was active in the... uh, uh, turn of the last century. He was active in the 1880s, 90s. During the you know, critical years in, in terms of photography, when photography is making this transition to a fine art or making a claim on being a fine art, and I walked into the exhibit and there was this, I, I was immediately drawn to a portrait of an African-American and I took a look at the, at the image. It's an aesthetically pleasing image, uh, which was rare for its time. And, and then I looked at the caption and it said Menelik, Victor over the Italians at Adwa, 1896. And I I was riveted by the image uh, for a couple of reasons, partly because it was an aesthetically pleasing image. And for that period, African-Americans existed in the realm of photography, but mostly as the objects of a kind of folkloric condescension. Uh, And there are plenty of examples of that. This was instead was uh, a, a kind of an image of grandeur, and uh, it was unusual in that regard, but also unusual because I knew the story of the Battle of Adwa. And what I had not understood until that time was how the story of Adwa, the story of African victory in the Age of Empire, would have played in Jim Crow America. Uh, that was the America that Fred Hollanday lived in. He was of, of European descent. And uh, I, I understood, I mean, you could, this was clearly a studio shot, uh, and I understood immediately that he had, in effect, sought out an African-American model, brought him into a studio. The photo is laughable in some respects. It's a hodgepodge of Africanisms. He dresses this model with pigeon feathers and brass uh, uh, gadgets and medallions. Uh, he, this is an African monarch of the imagination, but quite clearly he was using the photograph as a meditation on on this story, on the Adwa story. And I took that, this, this was, all of a sudden I, I understood that there was a book to be written 
it would not be Adwa as an African story or as a European story, but also as, a, as an American story. And so in that sense, a story that hovers, if you wanted to fix it in space, somewhere over the Atlantic, a, a truly transnational story. By, by the time I got back to my hotel, it was, you know, it was a snowy January, uh, uh, my mind was racing and I had already figured out uh, a, a rudimentary chapter organization. I mean, it was a book that took shape in my mind very, very quickly. Well, I like the book because, of course, Adi was a battle that's familiar to anyone who's interested in military history or teaches it, but it's usually just a kind of almost like a token where, I mean, it stands in for the rare instance of, of an African victory. Of course, there are a couple of others, right. um, but also of the kind of the ineptitude of Italian colonialism. It's kind of a, 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 a straw man as an event. That's true. I mean, and, and, and I was aware of that. On the other hand, I, there were a couple of things that, that they were quite clear to me. First of all, this is the this is not a setback on the scale of say the Zulu triumph over the British is on Luana, uh, where eventually the British do triumph. I mean, this was a decisive victory, and it preserved Ethiopian independence during the period of High Empire. And uh, f- for that reason, it, it it deserves recognition. It seemed to me. Uh, because it preserves this exception, and the cultural impact, of course, of this exception is enormous, not only in Africa, but also in the African diaspora, where it's clear that, yes, Africans can be free, they can defend themselves, uh, as they had done uh, at Adwa. Uh, it matters, too, in the broader, in, in Europe and in the broader European diaspora, because up until the Battle of Adwa, there was what passed for common sense in the 1890s was that the fate of Africa would be like the fate of North America, a kind of manifest destiny of European settler population moving across the continent. And even African-Americans were were taken with this idea. If you read some of the prominent figures, they're they're rather gloomy about the prospects for an independent Africa in these years. And Adwa strikes as a kind of lightning, and it shatters this common sense vision of how the future of Africa is going to play out, how the history of Africa will play out in the 20th century. So at the level of, of symbols and level of, 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 uh, of cultural perceptions, it's enormously important. And as for the small power thing, I mean, I think it's interesting. To, yes, it's true. I mean, Italy is, is turned back, although they did have successes in colonial ventures elsewhere. But the story of empire never was a small power, or rather exclusively a big power uh, story. Uh, there are plenty of examples of uh, powers of relatively modest means uh, that managed to establish rather substantial imperial holdings, uh, the Dutch, the Portuguese, uh, notoriously uh, Belgium. So the idea that one has to be a big player um, uh, to succeed uh, you know, is not necessarily uh, valid. So it, it's my idea then was to, was to look at Adwa both as a military story, but also as a story about challenging common sense uh, at the period of high empire, uh, that is, in, a, in the late 19th century. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the Dutch. I've had occasion recently to be to be reminded, as if I needed the reminder, that you know the, the persistence of the Dutch Empire right into the 20th century, and, sure. and you know into the period of decolonization, along with France and Britain, and, and right. that. So it's um, that's a Worth the, worth the reminder, as I said. Well, the, but the book is also interesting because it's you know it's called the Battle of Adwa, but the, what you the story you tell is really of a of a campaign, 
right. and, and also you set it into the context of the, the political environment in East Africa and and even into the sort of prehistory of, of the battle in terms of uh, politics and the struggle for power within Ethiopia itself. Um, tell me a little bit about how Menelik uh, comes to power then, this character that you saw in the photograph, or who was uh, modeled in the photograph. Sure. The, I mean, Menelik is a fascinating character. He's uh, in, in some ways typical of the rivalries within Ethiopia for power. I mean, this he is uh, a uh, a monarch of a of a province in southern Ethiopia, a province called Shoa, and he uh, uses his position of authority there in order to challenge the his the person who would be his predecessor as emperor of Ethiopia, Emperor Johannes. And he, Menelik, oddly enough, I mean, for, for being the emblem of Ethiopian patriotism, actually worked systematically to undermine Emperor Johannes, to whom he owed loyalty. Uh, uh, Menelik was willing to work closely with the Italians. In fact, in a sense, Menelik was sponsored by the Italians in their attempts to undermine Johannes in the 18. 18- 80s. Um, so he's a he's at least initially a modest regional player who's trying to jockey his way into power by working with the Italians who are giving him firearms, uh, who are giving him uh, systematic uh, support in, in diplomatic terms. They're building him up as a rival, and of course, when ultimately Johannes dies and and Menelik claims the throne, they. St- in a sense, they understand that they've won. I mean, this is their guy. They see Menelik as their client in Ethiopia. Uh, what they hadn't reckoned on was that Menelik, having arrived at power, would turn on the Italians. Um, this is part of what I talk about in the first third of the book, is how Menelik uh, is really a quite savvy operator. I mean, he's willing... He's willing to undermine Johannes, but uh, in the end, he's, he's Ethiopia's best chance uh, for independence, and he uses his position as emperor to uh, to pursue a, a national Ethiopian goal of driving the Italians out. And he has a couple of other significant allies in this in this struggle. The first being his his wife, who you spend a lot of time talking about. Yeah, the the the. I mean, at the core, this is the story of the battle, but the, the, the book is divided into thirds. And in the first part, laying out the, the, the story and in particular developing the characters, I, I go into some length in talking about his his wife, Empress Taitu, who is from the north, uh, Menelik's from the south. And um, she's not only gives him a kind of uh, geographical strength in a part of the country where he, uh, he's likely to be treated with suspicion, but she's also uh, quite effective politically herself. She um, brooks uh, no uh, challenges at court. Uh, she's perceptive in her own way about uh, how power operates. Uh, in fact, she's she's a kind of europhobe. Her reaction to the presence of Europeans, her suspicions about the intentions of Europeans is so dark that uh, it's, it's said that she dislikes the odor of Europeans. She has a, a, a deep reaction against them. Uh, but the, the combination of Menelik, who uh, 
despite his sometimes harsh appearance, uh, Manelik, who's this rather gentle soul, or comes across as a rather gentle soul, and Taitu, who is this rather fierce defender of Ethiopian interests at court, this combination is really powerful. In colloquial terms, it's the equivalent of the good cop, bad cop routine, where Taitu uh, stakes out a maximalist position, uh, and then that creates an opening uh, for Manelik to come in and uh, and and, and negotiate uh, a, an agreement that works well for Ethiopia, uh, but also uh, is agreeable to Ethiopian partners. So it's a it's a it's a very important relationship. And if you look at the photographs of this of this couple late in life, and there are some photographs of Menelik and Taitu in a very private setting, <clears throat> and it, there's there's a you can see a kind of comfort and a closeness between them that would be very difficult to fake. I mean, these are people who actually, who really like each other, um, not only as political partners, but as friends. And you can see that this relationship works for them on a lot of different levels. And of course, it's a critical relationship for the successful defense of Ethiopia. And the second alliance that I, that I noted with Menelik is, is a, a set of European ones, I guess, um, partly with the Italians, that he obviously reverses that, but also with, with individual Europeans. You mentioned this gentleman, Alfred Ilg, and a few other, um, somewhat surprisingly, the, the role of the Swiss um, in, in all of this. I, right. Took me by surprise. Yeah. They, um, uh, one thing that's really clear, I mean, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, and we talk about the hearts and minds uh, strategy for, uh, for third world countries defending themselves, something like that, thank quite clearly something like that as it work in the defense of Ethiopia. Alfred Ilg is a Swiss engineer who, uh, for reasons that are uh, apparently have to do with his personality, his desire for uh, starting over again for something new, he makes his way to East Africa when he's 25 years old. Uh, he, he goes there. He's sent by a, a firm operating out of Aden, uh, and he um, is sent to the court of Menelik. Uh, at first, he's simply an engineer. He, he does bridges and roads projects for Menelik, uh, but over time, he proves his usefulness not only to Menelik, but to Taitu. And he, he becomes a kind of factotum. He begins to do not only engineering projects, but he's involved in uh, uh, procuring items that are of interest to uh, the, the court on his many trips to Europe. So he's deployed to Europe to do things like buy agricultural equipment, buy ammunition, buy a cartridge loader, and whatever it is, if, if a Taitu and Menelik want it, Ilg is the guy that they're going to send off to do it. Um, he even picks up personal items. I mean, th in the correspondence between Ilg and Taitu and Menelik, you see Taitu saying, well, don't forget to pick up a pair of shoes for me. She's fond of European footwear. Uh, you know, she sends along her foot size uh, whatever it is, uh, Ilg's the guy who does it. He's also, of course, the person who can interpret European intent and European actions to the imperial couple. And uh, just as important, he can shape the image of Ethiopia within Europe. And he does this very artfully. He, for example, is the person who suggests that Ethiopia should have its own postage stamps and its own coinage. And we may think, oh, well, these are trivial matters, but these are some of the more fundamental, tangible emblems of independent sovereignty. And as such, I think Ilg and through him, the imperial couple, understand just how important these symbolic markers are. He also gives interviews with the European press. 
where he puts forward the Ethiopian point of view, and he knows just which buttons to push. He's, he's ably uh, supported by um, a journalist named Kazimir Mondan Videle, who goes on to become a kind of Abyssinian or Amharic language and literature expert. Uh, but uh, in his early years, uh, Kazimir is sending dispatches to the European press, writing in laudable terms about the Ethiopian court, uh, its leading figures, and uh, emphasizing the things I think that Europeans uh, would would identify with. I mean, Ethiopia is an overwhelmingly Christian country. Certainly, the court of Menlik is. Uh, they, in the images that they release, they emphasize um, Menlik's uh, Christian heritage. They always show him with the crucifix high at the neck. Um, they talk about the court of Ethiopia in terms of a kind of a, a medieval European past. All of which help to create an investment on the part of Europeans in the fate of Ethiopia. So it's not so much clearly a European versus um, African struggle, but one in which uh, Europeans can even, in a sense, identify with uh, with Ethiopia and see in some ways it's a, a real real relationship. So a hearts and minds relationship uh, is, is an important part of the soft power struggle that uh, Alfred Ilg and other Europeans helped Menelik to lead. And all of this um, shapes European reaction to the conflict between uh, Italy and Ethiopia. How does that break out? What's, what's the origin of the falling out of, of, between Ethiopia or between Menelik and the Italians? Um, well, the, 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 in, in diplomatic terms, there's a treaty that's negotiated. Uh, it's actually in the works at the time, uh, in the twilight of the reign of Emperor Johannes, uh, when Johannes dies in in a battle against the the Mahdi in uh, in Sudan, um, Menelik claims the throne, and the Italians move in and building on the relationship they've cultivated over the years, they negotiate a treaty at a place called Wuchale, and this treaty becomes the foundation for. Uh, relations between Italy and Ethiopia. Um, it, it's also the origin of the conflict that would lead to the Battle of Adwa, in that there's a, a, one of the articles um, from the Italian point of view establishes a protectorate relationship over Ethiopia, Article 17. And it, it becomes a, um, a, a, a point of, of detonation for the conflict because um, in, it's claimed that in the Amharic version, nothing like a protectorate uh, is established. It simply says that Ethiopia may turn to the Italians to represent it abroad, not that it must, not that it's obliged to. In my reading, and this is one of the areas where I think I make an original contribution to the story, in my reading, I think it's pretty clear that everybody understands that, yes, there is a protectorate. And the, the way I the way I make this case is I follow the Ethiopian delegation to Italy where they go and they sign the treaty. Um, and there at the, at the court of the Italian king, there's all this language of protectorate. Uh, the, the Ethiopian delegation seeks the protection of Italy and the king confers protection uh, on Ethiopia. It, this is all fairly clear. My interpretation is what the Ethiopians are doing with the Treaty of Wuchale is buying time, that they are using the language of protectorate uh, and 
in order to prepare for the conflict that they know is coming. They, in effect, they buy themselves some critical months in which they can acquire further arms, uh, build an army, and launch the campaign that would ultimately uh, lead to the eviction of the Italians. As I said earlier, that's, it's not just about the battle, but this kind of magnificent pr- uh, procession from the court in southern Ethiopia to the north where the Italians are, are occupying Ethiopian territory. And that, and that the success of that procession um, is critical for the outcome of the battle and for Menelik's success. That's right. The, the, um, you know, one of the features of, of Ethiopian armies is they can move uh, very, very fast, um, far out exceeding uh, the, uh, the speed with which uh, European armies of the day could move. Uh, but in, in, in the long campaign leading up to Adwa, from Addis Ababa in the south to Adwa in the north, and it's hundreds of miles, it's this lengthy campaign which proceeds at a stately pace. Uh, Empress Taitu and Emperor Manalik are part of this campaign. They, uh, they move barely uh, five miles a day when something like 25, 30 or more would be certainly within the power of an Ethiopian army. But it's more of a stately procession. In part, it's clear they're testing the loyalty of the population, and they're testing their authority. Um, so for them, it's very important to show their largesse, to gather in uh, contingents of troops from other regional leaders, building an army of over 100,000, building loyalties, testing relationships. So when the decisive uh, encounter occurs farther north, uh, they are fully in command of their forces, fully in command of a massive army, and confident that those relationships and those loyalties won't break apart uh, on the eve of battle or even worse in the midst of battle. Yeah, so, and it's not just about outnumbering the, the Italians at the, at the point of the battle, but it is this, this um, campaign that you compare to you know, the greatest European campaigns that we're all familiar with, even, even Napoleonic ones in terms of the distances traveled uh, and the way that Menelik clearly outmaneuvers the Italians and, and, and um, packs them into a, a place where they essentially have to attack. Yes. The, the, um, one of the points I make is that this is one of the 19th century's greatest campaigns. Uh, if you look at, you know, Gettysburg, or you look at Sherman's March to the Sea. I mean, these are great campaigns over over uh, significant different distances and over great periods of time and great logistical challenges for an army. But, uh, you know, the Menelik campaign is 500 miles. It's many months, um, you know, from September uh, to the 1st of March. I mean, this is keeping an army in the field that long is uh, an astonishing feat. And it needs to be recognized as a major accomplishment. Napoleon's campaign from Vilnius to Moscow uh, uh, comes close. It's about 490 miles, number of months. Of course, it ends in, in defeat. And um, Menelik's campaign is, is a marvel uh, simply as, as a logistical challenge. As a, as a strategic enterprise, it's impressive, too, because what Menelik is able to do by building an army so large that the Italians don't dare confront it in the open field um, is that they really limit the strategic options, the, the, the options available to the Italians. By the end of the campaign, the Italians are, at least Oreste Baratieri, the, the, the you know, commander-in-chief of Italian forces, he, he's, he's, he knows that he can't 
uh, fight this army in the field. He hopes to lure them into attacking him in a fortified position. And, of course, Menelik uh, doesn't take the bait. Instead, Menelik realizes that he can win this campaign simply by marching past the Italians into Eritrea, uh, um, uh, creating uh, disorder uh, in the lines of communication and affects um, establishing authority over uh, the the entire uh, uh, Italian claimed territories. It is, uh, um, uh, in effect, the, the Battle of Ottawa is a battle that doesn't need to be fought. Uh, there's, a, in effect, a kind of checkmate situation that exists simply because th- there's no uh, there's no way that a reasonable commander uh, would give battle to an army of this size. And, and, and yet, and <laughs> yet, does. well, that's right. It, it, so part of the story I tell is exactly how this conflict happens. And um, Baratieri knows he's defeated, that his best choice in the situation is not to fight Menelik's army, but to retreat into Eritrea, uh, defend his lines of communication. Uh, with every step into Eritrea, he's moving closer to, to his lines of communication and stretching Menelik even further. Um, he needs to hold on to his army. He needs to hold on to what he can of Eritrea. Um, instead, his brigadier generals, who resent him, they're all from high-born Italian families, uh, and some of them are just recently arrived in in Ethiopia, um, they want a decisive encounter. They they believe the worst of the Ethiopian army. They believe all the rumors, all the disinformation that Menelik's agents were sending out about how his army is riven by factions, uh, demoralized, starved, and anxious to go home. And the brigadier generals believe that, and, and they they push against Baratieri. They they want a decisive encounter. Uh, they finally badger. Baratieri to the point that they that he agrees to an aggressive advance, not an attack, but an aggressive advance to uh, passes near the town of Adwa, um, thinking that perhaps uh, they could force Menelik into attacking them there in a highly disadvantageous position. Uh, and, and if Menelik did so, they would have a chance of winning. Instead, the they the um, the his the brigadier generals ignore. Baratieri's explicit instructions uh, and uh, the disaster that unfolds is the disaster of the, the morning of the 1st of March where they overshoot their uh, their destinations and in effect, and I, and I argue, I think rather conclusively, quite deliberately engage Menelik's forces uh, in the open field uh, with a disaster that follows. And it's, uh, there's like a, a kind of conspiracy among the, the, the brigadiers to not just to exceed their their mandate, but then almost—I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm um, overstating your case—but to to leave that gap in between the two brigades that advance out to to mm-hmm. force Baratieri to bring the entire um, Italian force forward into the battle with disastrous con- consequences. Yeah, the 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 evidence that we have—I mean, the, the evidence is partial because two of the brigadier generals die at Adwa, and so we don't have their accounts. But we do have other accounts from two two brigadiers who did survive, and we have the commentary um, that comes from discussions they have with other soldiers and other uh, eyewitnesses after the fact. And the, the image that, that that emerges is that of a kind of collusion on the part of the brigadier generals to force Baratieri forward into a, into a direct attack on Ethiopian forces. The best evidence of this is that they the the 
um, the brigades that are the left and right wing of the army leave a brigade-sized gap right in the center, which they which serves as an invitation to uh, Baratieri to move his forces up, send a brigade that will occupy that central position and, and complete the front against the Ethiopian forces. We also have communications from one of the brigadier generals, uh, Albertone, uh, back to Baratieri, in effect ordering him to bring uh, the Aramondi brigade up and fill that uh, central space. I think the evidence is pretty powerful that um, this is a, uh, an act of insubordination, really, that leads to disaster at Adwa. And the the carnage that ensues is really um, remarkable. I, I wouldn't I would say unspeakable, but you you write about it in in, uh, in great detail. Yes, uh, right, and and this obviously has to be laid at the doorstep of the brigadier generals who who put their men in harm's way, but. Um, Ethiopian practice in the 19th century is to take trophies from the victims, and uh, and in fact, this is a, you know, this is not a professional army. Um, they their compensation that the, that the Ethiopian soldiers get is whatever they can remove from the bodies of the fallen, and um, so they 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 the bodies of the fallen are stripped, and and trophies are taken. And in the case of Ethiopian. Uh, practice this uh, includes uh, castration and taking the, the scrotum as a trophy. Uh, Menelik opposes this, and he had opposed it verbally, and he had told his army that this was not to happen. He actually says, don't bring me the testicles, bring me the man, because he knows that the Italian soldiers are worth more as prisoners. Uh, but um, there, there are uh, mutilations that, that take place on the, in the, on the battlefield in the aftermath of the, of the battle. Uh, and then what happens to the soldiers themselves is difficult uh, too. Uh, and this is, and I think, a really another very di- interesting dimension of the of the battle in that for the first time Europeans are at the mercy of Africans in substantial numbers. Over a thousand Italians are taken prisoner, and um, they are. Menelik realizes that they represent substantial leverage in peace negotiations, and uh, he marches them uh, back south, back to Addis Ababa. They're billeted on the population. All the hundreds remain in Addis Ababa uh, under the care of Menelik and Taitu. Um, uh, their story is interesting, too. But it, it is The aftermath, I argue, is at least as interesting as the battle itself. And the whole final third of the book is devoted to the story of these various aftermaths, some of them horrific, uh, some of them uh, actually quite touching. Yeah, that was. You know, I wanted to make sure that we mentioned that the kind of the denouement of this of the of the battle involving these prisoners, um, the Italian prisoners, uh, important for the reasons that you just mentioned, but also um, I kind of appreciated the reminder also that there were Africans on both sides of the battle, the Ascari that that um, formed a significant component of the of the Italian army. That's right. The the Italians early on in their expansion in East Africa. Um, realize that it's they can field a more cost-effective army, and in fact a speedier army if they hire locals um, into their ranks. And so they create first four and eventually eight battalions of native troops known as Ascari. Um, they are Eritrean, they are Sudanese, they are even Ethiopian. Uh, and they they're put in uniform and um, trained and equipped, um, and and they fight on behalf of of Italy in in Eritrea and in Ethiopia. 
Um, they, by, by all accounts, they are quite effective soldiers. Um, they are, by in, in local terms, quite well paid. Uh, they enjoy a certain wealth and a certain prestige in the community. Um, their fate after the battle is is horrific, too, because they are regarded not as prisoners by the Ethiopians, but as traitors. And uh, for that, they are punished by uh, they lose their right hand and their left foot uh, so that they won't fight again. Um, th- th- this penalty would be imposed was a matter of debate at court in the aftermath of the battle. Uh, here, too, there are, there's the maximalist faction, and Taitu is part of it, uh, and a more moderate faction, which is uh, anchored by Menelik. Uh, but ultimately, it's the maximalists who win out, in part because in the aftermath of the battle, uh, the Ethiopians had lost many, many lives, uh, and um, there is as one might well imagine, a a desire uh, for punishment. Um, And so I described these scenes where Ascari are are brought forward one by one. Um, They have to submit to punishment. And it it becomes, well, it it, it becomes obviously a black mark on the Italians who who bring these soldiers into these circumstances. And it becomes, uh, in that sense, a public relations problem for Italy. It also, I argue, is something that has to be kept in mind when we think about um, the later rupture in relations between Eritrea and Ethiopia. In a sense, there is a, a river of blood that, um, that divides these two. Right. Well, I, I think we've, um, we've certainly hit the highlights of this, of this great book. I mean, it, it really makes clear the way that, um, you know, Menelik's talents as a, as a campaigner, as a, and then as a statesman involving the, the, the repatriation of these prisoners and the, the preservation of, of Ethiopian uh, sovereignty. It's, uh, it's really terrific. And I, I thank you for, for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed it very much. I, I always like to uh, conclude the interview by asking you uh, for a book that I might read in the future and feature on the, on the podcast. Do you have any suggestions along those lines? Um, you know, I, I do. I, um, would recommend um, Philip Dwyer's Napoleon: The Path to Power, uh, a Yale book that uh, I think is a is a great read and uh, and a and a nice new uh, synthesis. Um, not exactly military history, but uh, a, a a good a history that probably would be of interest to people who are uh, looking at 20th century issues. Is Katharina Clark's Moscow: The Fourth Rome, which is uh, published last year um, and uh, gives us, a, I think, a really different take on on uh, a major power of the 20th century, obviously the Soviet Union. Well, thanks for those suggestions. I've, I've noted them down. And thanks, thanks again for joining me today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Raymond Jonas, the author of The Battle of Padua, African Victory in the Age of Empire, uh, new in 2011 from uh, Harvard University Press. This is New Books in Military History. Hope you'll join us again. 